Good morning. We are studying in the book of First Thessalonians, and we're all the way through chapter 1, and we're into chapter 2 this morning. First Thessalonians chapter 2. You know, there are some really deep life questions, and I want to ask one this morning at the very beginning, and I don't know if you've pondered this before or not, but um, some of you have heard of the name, uh, and Jake, maybe we could put his likeness up here on the board. This is supposed to be, this is actually a painting of Alexander the Great. And so the question I want to pose to you this morning is, what makes Alexander the Great great? Deep question. What makes Alexander the Great great? You've heard of Herod the Great. We're getting a little bit of reverb here, can you? Yeah, thanks. Um, You've heard of Herod the Great. What made Herod the Great great? Or Alfred the Great, or Peter the Great. Some of those guys you might not have heard of, and so you're probably not thinking they were so great. But I'm sure you've heard of Alexander and Herod the Great. In Latin, the term for greatness or for great is Magnus. And there are people who are named Magnus, and I actually read through the whole list of them, and I didn't know any of them. So I didn't think they were too great even to bring up today. But we do talk about... uh, Uh, The term magnus opus, have you heard of that? It's a great work, a great work. And it describes a person's greatest accomplishment in arts or in literature or in some other field, their magnus opus. What makes a person great? Well, it's interesting that uh, today's class in uh, Here's the Difference happened to be on this very subject. And I, I really like it when I see the Lord just uh, merging classes and, and sermons together in a way. It says to me, obviously the, word, the Lord wants to get this idea across, this subject across to us. And so I, was, um, I spent a little time in here this morning, and I overheard some of the conversation in the Bible study here, which will come up later, interestingly enough. And I spent some time over there this morning, and I heard some of the conversation there, and and it all fits quite well with this chapter, too. What makes a person great? Well, the common view is that greatness is being better than, greater than, superior to others. And, and the way to the top in corporations or in anything in life, it seems, is to climb over everybody else so that you are standing on the top of the pile. You're the greatest after climbing and clawing over everyone else. In Matthew chapter 20, a mother approached Jesus and asked him uh, to appoint her two sons to positions of honor and greatness at his coming kingdom. And he says, what is your request? And she, being very humble about her request, she says, I want my sons to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left hand. That's the only position, really, that's, uh, that's uh, anything else would be... She didn't say all of this. But anything beneath that would be too little for my sons. You can see that in the heart 
of this mother. And it was apparent in the passage, as you read through uh, Matthew 20, that actually it was in their heart too, because Jesus actually directs his attention to them. And I'm thinking that they must have put it in her heart and her tongue to ask this of him, because they were too humble to ask of it themselves. And then when Jesus told them that it was uh, up to the Father to appoint uh, ones to those uh, places, the other disciples, the other ten, were upset with the first two because I'm sure it was in their heart too. They all wanted that position of greatness. They all wanted that position of being at the top. They all wanted to be considered the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Of course, next to the Lord Jesus, but only next to him. James and John held this very common view of greatness, that it's being better than, greater than, superior to others. But this is what Jesus says about greatness. Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you Let him be your servant. And whoever desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Many years ago, I think it it was um, the Gaither group came out with a song And it's, if you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. That was a whole song. It just kept repeating itself over and over again because we didn't need more than that. We just needed that one simple truth to be branded into our hearts and our minds. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, learn to be the servant of all. Bill McDonald writes, The Gentiles think of greatness in terms of mastery and rule. In Christ's kingdom, greatness is manifested by service. Whoever aspires to greatness must become a servant, and whoever desires to be first must become a slave. Now, in our service, one of the things that we must think about carefully is character. A man may become president A man may become a CEO of a major corporation. He holds a great office or he holds a great position. We've had presidents who are considered great uh, political leaders, yet they are morally bankrupt. A great CEO may take his company to the top, yet be corrupt to the core himself. CEO normally stands for Chief Executive Officer, right, Howard? That's the name, Chief Executive Officer. It was in the uh, early part of this century that uh, there were so many corrupt CEOs that a new phrase was coined. CEO, instead of standing for Chief Executive Officer, it began to stand for Criminal Executive Officer. You may remember names like Bernie Madoff who ran a $65 billion Ponzi scheme. Kenneth Lay, Jeffrey Skilling of Enron fame. 
and there was Tyco's CEO, and the list went on and on and on of criminal executive officers. In his journal, um, Jim Elliott writes this. He says, in spiritual work, if nowhere else, the character of the worker decides the quality of the work. The character of the worker decides the quality of his work. He went on to say, no wonder so much work in the kingdom is shoddy. Just look at the moral character of the worker. So as we turn to 1 Thessalonians 2, we want to take a look at Paul's ministry. And in doing so, we want to consider also the ministry, uh, our ministry to the Lord. And whether our service is as an elder or as a deacon or a song leader or a pianist or a Sunday school teacher, one who provides the snacks Sunday morning, this message is for you and this message is for me. Those who put out chairs, those who clean up, those who lock up, those who handle the funds, those who handle the soundboard, send out messages, make brochures, keep our duty list together, all of these things This message is for you. It's about our service for the Lord. And if you serve in any way, in any capacity, take a look at this section of 1 Thessalonians. It's about you and me. True greatness is in serving. And a great servant must have a great character. Or really, their service amounts to nothing. Paul writes, For you yourselves know, chapter 2, verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. For our exhortation did not come from error or uncleanness, nor was it in deceit. But as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Well, we're going to stop there for now. In this letter, Paul uses the phrase, you know, you know, nine times. In this uh, entire book, you know. They knew what kind of men came to them. It seems from this chapter and from other things that he says throughout the book that there must have been some opposition that came in to the Thessalonican church after he left. And they began to upset the Thessalonians in such a way that they began to question, well, maybe Paul wasn't so good after all. And oftentimes this happens when a work is established, others come in to deceive or to disrupt the work, and they begin to question the leadership, to question the person who led them to the Lord, or to question those who helped them along in their faith. And so it's not uncommon, Paul actually uh, addresses this in Galatians and elsewhere, but just the way he's wording this, it seems to me that some have come in after he left and has, have begun to disrupt the church. And so Paul is saying, look, You don't even have to take our word for it. You know you were eyewitnesses. You experienced what we did for you. Just think back at that and remember that. Bring it to mind and uh, it will help you to understand that 
we weren't like what they're saying. So nine times, you know, they knew Paul's public ministry. And the neat thing is they knew his private life. Paul didn't just come and preach and then go home and stay behind closed doors. People interacted with him. He was well known by the church. Um, He was in people's homes. Uh, They were with him throughout the day and so on. They saw him not only officially, but they saw him practically day by day. And uh, we need to uh, recognize that they observed his public ministry, but also his private life. I want to ask you something about your service for the Lord. Is your life an open book? Okay. Is your life an open book to all of the other saints that you're serving? All the other people that you're serving? Do they know you? Do they really know you in a personal way? Do people have the freedom to come over to your house, to walk in unannounced, to open your refrigerator and take what's ever in there? Okay. We have in our house an open-door policy, okay? And I love it. It's completely free. So far, it's been really good that nobody has walked into our home when we've had guests there and we weren't there. That's been good so far. (laughs) But you know, and I would say this to any of you, you are free to come over to our house anytime. Walk in. If you're hungry, go get something from the refrigerator, you know, or the cupboards or whatever. We have that open-door policy. And I hope you do, too, with your life, that you're open to the saints um, and how you interact with them. Are people able to see you as you really are, how you treat your wife, how you treat your husband, how you treat your children, how you treat your friends? Do they really know you? Is your ministry an open book to others as they uh, watch you? Are you one way at church and then somebody completely different during the week? Okay. How do you really behave? What kind of person are you? Do you practice what you preach? You know, found nine times in this book. So it's actually found four times in this section. I'm going to go through it real quick. Um, Paul says, for verse 1, For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. Verse 2, uh, how they were spitefully treated in Philippi. As you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel. That's verse 2. Verse um, 5, he says, For neither at any time did we use flattering words, as you know. And then that's going to be it for this section. We'll look at the rest of them in later, uh, later weeks. Okay, so as we look at Paul, Paul, as you remember, has come to the Thessalonians, and he is pre- preaching the gospel, and there's opposition in Thessalonica, uh, the Jews who he preached to, some of them were, some of the people believed, some of the Jews believed, but some didn't. And some began to stir up trouble uh, here among the Thessalonians. Um, Paul is looking back at his time in Thessalonica. And this is about a year later, and he's writing this first letter back to the church. And as he's writing to them, he's reminding them of what his ministry was not. So this week we're going to look at the negative. His ministry was not, was not, was not, was not. That's what we're going to look at today. Next week we're going to look at what his ministry was. So it's important that our ministry to others, our service for others, is not certain things. 
and it's important that our ministry is certain things. We're going to look at both of those over the next uh, two weeks. So, number, verse number one. First of all, our ministry was not in vain. Not in vain. What do you think he means by that? Vain simply means empty. It wasn't useless. It wasn't wasted. We didn't come to Thessalonica and leave Thessalonica with nothing remaining. It's so wonderful to see this, that Paul, when he went into this region, this city, he saw people saved. And these were people who were idolaters. And they turned to God from idolatry. And so it's a wonderful testimony that Paul can say, Look at yourselves. You're the answer to the first accusation. Paul's, the accusation against Paul was, it was a worthless ministry. Really? He left the church behind. There was a church of people who had trusted in Jesus Christ. Look at the person next to you. Look at the person behind you, in front of you. Our ministry was not in vain. That's what he's saying. They turned to God from idols. What an amazing transformation took place. And their, their, the church was thriving. He didn't come in as a circus show, entertain the crowds, and then leave the next week. Okay? His message had a life-changing effect. So I'm going to ask you questions about your ministry after each thing that we see. Paul's ministry is not. The first one is this. Does our ministry, does your ministry change lives? So as you serve other people, do you think to yourself, I am in the ministry of changing lives? You say, well, I just, you know, put refreshments out. That's all I do. I just teach a Sunday school class. I just move chairs around. That's all I do in my service for the Lord. You know, Billy Graham's wife had a plaque over her kitchen sink. And the phrase above the sink said, divine services held here three times daily. You know, it's wonderful. She was really saying, look, Billy's out there preaching. I'm at home, but this is where I should be. And I'm going to make this place a refuge for him. And so even as I do the dishes today, I am serving the Lord. And I'm going to do it with the right attitude and the right heart. Divine services held here three times a day. As you serve the Lord in whatever capacity... Do you do it for the Lord? Does your ministry change lives? It should. People should see you and say, you know what? She had the ministry of helps, and she served us faithfully week after week after week after week. Faithful service. Does your ministry change lives? Yeah, it should. Okay, verse 2. Not in fear. But even after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much conflict. Well, you remember what happened at Philippi, right? They were preaching and this demon-possessed girl came alongside of them and was trying to disrupt it. She was really saying, these men are of the most high God. Well, what kind of a testimony do you want from a a demon-possessed girl? Not exactly the best advertisement, right? So Paul cast the demon out as a result of her not being able to do fortune-telling anymore. The people who were controlling her uh, had Paul arrested and Silas arrested. They were, they were flogged. They were beaten. They were put in jail. And it was terrible treatment. Put yourself in their shoes for a minute, okay? Think about this for just a second. 
If this was you, if you had gone into a town and you had come to preach the gospel and this had happened to you, and finally you were released from prison by a miracle of God, do you think you'd have a little change in your strategy for the next town? Say, you know what, that hurts. I'm still feeling the pain of the strapping that I got from this. I'm still bleeding, even though my wounds have been uh, anointed by the jailer who got saved here the tendency for us would be to change our tune, right? Maybe I won't be so bold next city. Maybe I won't be so straightforward with the gospel next time around. If this is the consequence of being so bold, then just don't be so bold, right? That's how we think. But Paul is saying, that's not what happened. We left Philippi still with the straps, strap marks on our back, still with the fresh memory of being imprisoned falsely, still with the feeling of the uh, stocks on our feet, and we went ahead and we were just as bold in, in Thessalonica as well. Praise the Lord. Even after cruel treatment, their message remained the same. They didn't water it down. They didn't change the gospel. They, came, they didn't change their tactics. They were fearless. And they, felt, they found themselves in opposition in Thessalonica too. But they were fearless. And God blessed that service. And so the second question for us is this, are you bold in taking a stand for Jesus Christ? In your service for the Lord, are you bold in taking a stand for Jesus Christ, no matter what the consequence? Third, verse 3, for our exhortation did not come from error. Error. These servants of the Lord had no intention of delivering a deceptive Message. I'll tell you something. There are plenty of people who claim that they have a message from the Lord today and their message is full of errors. Those people who come knocking at your front door to deliver um, a message from Jehovah are not messengers of Jehovah. The cults who stand at your doorstep, they don't, they bring in a deceptive message, a message filled with errors. And the scripture warns us, don't even let them in. Don't have fellowship with them. So many TV preachers teach error as they deliver their message. They avoid the strong truths of sin and righteousness and judgment and pre- preach a message that is palatable to the masses so that they can uh, uh, bring many more people in and much more money in. In doing so, however, they send thousands or millions to hell. I remember recently seeing a, an interview by a famous uh, TV preacher, by one of the um, uh, TV uh, interviewers, if you want to call it that, and uh, one of the media moguls. And the questions were great questions. And as I listened, I thought, wow, what an opportunity to share the gospel. And he talked about, the, the questions were things like this. Do you believe that those who don't trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are going to hell? How would you answer that question? I mean, if that isn't an open invitation to go to the Scripture and show what the Scripture says. And the guy waffled. And he just said one thing and another, and he never really admitted that the Scriptures teach that. Well, I'm not a judge of anybody. I really can't say. And he went on and on like this. And I'm thinking... This is ridiculous. You have millions of people, or at least hundreds of thousands of people through the books and through the TV program and everything else, who are listening to you, and this is what you're saying? 
Error. Error. Will not come forth with the truth. That's error. Paul wasn't like that. He delivered his message, and it was the truth. You know, I often think about these religious charlatans, and I think about it in these terms. Hitler was a man who sent millions of people to their physical death. Millions of people to their physical death. But these false preachers are worse than Hitler because they are sending millions of people to an eternity in hell. It's serious business. Error sends people to hell. Error. And so the question for us as we minister the word, as we minister to one another, as we minister to others and and teach and preach the gospel, um, do we teach and preach truth or error? Don't water it down. Do we teach truth or error? Third, not in uncleanness. I mean, this is fourth, actually. Not in uncleanness, verse 3. You know, it's an interesting phenomenon But if you were to study this, you would see that very often when a person, let's just say a man, when a man um, holds false doctrine, very often they also have an immoral lifestyle. Very often connected. And uh, it's not surprising to me to see many of these so-called great preachers who end up falling into the sin of immorality. They're teaching and preaching lies, so many of them, and then they fall into immorality besides. The error is already in them, and they're just expressing it by their lifestyle as well. Not in uncleanness. A man's morals affects his beliefs, and a man's beliefs affect his morals. The word uncleanness here is sensuality. Paul and his companions did not take advantage of anyone. I think uh, in the class this morning, I, I only overheard it, so I didn't get all the full details of what you were talking about. But it's, it is interesting that uh, I think you were talking about idolatry and often how idolatry uh, associated with idolatry is immorality. And in the um, churches at the end, as, as the Lord rebukes his churches in the book of Revelation, there is one church that he talks about where they have um, actually embraced immorality as part of the religious function of that church. And you say, well, that doesn't happen. Yes, it does happen. There's a religious organization not too far from here. It is not a Christian church but where there is the practice of immorality in the ranks of this religious organization, from the top all the way to the bottom. This is true of many, many religious groups today, where there's immorality very closely associated with it. Paul and his companions did not take advantage of anyone uh, through immorality. They did not try to take Uh, take advantage of weak women. They did not try to take advantage of anybody morally. They were not like the Pharisees who Jesus said, you're like whitewashed tombs. You're beautiful. You're white on the outside, but inside you are corrupt. You're full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness on the inside. Many preachers have, as a result of the concern of falling into immorality, have made it a policy to never 
be alone with another woman, apart from his own wife, of course. This year, 2014, in the Orlando, Florida area, three mega pastors resigned due to immorality. But it doesn't matter if the person is a mega pastor or a Sunday school teacher, an usher, or a kitchen helper. Character matters. In Christian service, character matters. And so the question for us is, do we minister in such a way that we are morally clean? Morally clean. Do we keep short accounts with the Lord to do with our thought life, our what we see, what we do? Are we uh, ministering in a way that we are morally clean? Verse 3 also says, not in deceit. Nor was it in deceit, he says. So we've already looked at the phrase, not in error. Here the word deceit is used. And it has the idea of um, trickery. Uh, taking advantage of somebody through trickery. So from time to time we've had mice that have decided to move in with us at the house and uh, they don't pay rent. And so I use a form of trickery to deceive them because I want to get rid of them. Okay, I want to kill them. And I'm sorry if that doesn't uh, fit very well with those who are more humane than I am. but And so I have a little trick. I get a mouse trap, and I take crunchy peanut butter. That's the best kind. They like that better than the smooth. Don't know why, but they do. And I put a little bit of that crunchy peanut butter on the little flap thing that they step on or jiggle in the, you know, death. Yeah. And I'm alluring that mouse with a tasty morsel. And that little mouse, innocent as it might be, comes running up to it and goes, you know, screws its nose up a little bit and smells the crunchy peanut butter. I won't tell you the brand I use. Okay? That's a trade secret. And it takes, it imbibes in that tasty morsel. And pretty soon, whack! And it's dead. Gone. When it takes the bait, it doesn't know this, but when it takes the bait, it costs it its life. When a false preacher and a false teacher uses deceit, uses deceit, that tasty morsel that sounds so right, they are spokesmen for Satan, who is the father of lies. And when someone tries to turn you away from the faith, like a false prophet did to Sergius Paulus, Paul rebuked him by saying to him, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? Those false teachers also came into Galatia and tried to pervert the gospel, saying that if you, you're saved, what you believe about the gospel is good as far as it goes, that salvation is by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But you're not really, really saved until you add circumcision to it, and that's what really makes you right with God. And that simple addition to the gospel message, Paul said, even if an angel of God were to come and preach any other message other than what was already preached to you, the simple message of faith alone in Jesus Christ, 
Let him be anathema. Let him be accursed forever, Paul says. Very strong. In fact, I think it's the strongest words in the New Testament by the Apostle Paul. Oh, foolish Galatians, he said, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? This is the deceit of adding to salvation, adding to the works. Deceit. And so the question for us is when we teach and when we preach and when we present the truths of God's word, do we tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? Is that what our ministry is all about? Do we teach the word of God or the philosophies of men? Nor was it in deceit, Paul says. Verse 4, not by novices. That word novice is not used here. But he says this, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. You know, I love that. The Bible is full of illustrations like this, that the Lord says, he who is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Okay, that principle stands in the scripture. And so, in fact, even in uh, the work of a deacon, it says, let him first be tested and then let him serve. Okay, and the idea is that you test people in small areas. You test people in small areas of service. Be faithful in putting out the cookies. Be faithful in moving chairs. Be faithful in whatever service the Lord has given you, and the Lord will give you more. Greater service is actually a reward for service well done. Okay, And so this is what Paul and, and uh, Silas and the others They were seasoned and tested before they ever came to Thessalonica. They had already made a missionary journey before this. And now they were making a second missionary journey as seasoned veterans of the gospel. And uh, he says, we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. There is danger, and the scripture warns us against this, of laying hands on somebody Suddenly or, or too early, right? And the idea of laying in hands is that you're, you're participating in that person's ministry. It's better to test that person in small, simple ways first. See how they do rather than just say, oh, you have a desire to go to the mission field? Go and be blessed, brother, and go out there and then have to work through all the problems and difficulties they've caused on the field and bring them back. Terrible. So lay hands on no one suddenly without first testing them. So the question for us is this. Is your service approved by God? Can you be trusted with greater service because um, you've already been faithful in that which is least? Uh, Verse 4. Not to please men. Even so we speak not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. Paul and uh, his fellow missionaries realized that they had a sacred stewardship from God and they did not water down the message of God at all because they realized they were accountable. One day, this is a, a, a wonderful truth of the scripture as well. One day we will all stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. There it will not be a question of whether we deserve to be in heaven or not. That's already been answered at the cross. Jesus died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again the third day. And whoever believes in him is saved. So that part is already established. 
as we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it isn't a question of whether the Lord says, well, you know, you're out of here or you're not. It has, a, it has to do with our rewards. And standing before the Lord, what will he be able to say concerning our uh, ministry? Will he uh, look at us and say, you know what? It was clear to me as you served me that you had one single pure desire, and that was to please me in everything you did and in everything you said. That should be the characteristic of our service for the Lord, a single pure desire to serve him. Paul predicted in uh, 2 Timothy 4, For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. That's what the world, that's what the church in the end days is going to want. But we can't be participants with them. When we serve, this is the question for us. Are we more concerned about what people think about us or what the Lord thinks about us? Verse 5, not with flattering words. For neither at any time did we use flattering words. What does that mean? You know, there are, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but anytime I, some of you have Bibles with red letters in it. Those red letters are actually not more important than the black letters in the Bible. I just want you to know that. All of it is the Word of God. But the red letters are designated in the Bible to simply say these are the words the Lord spoke when he was on earth. And um, I don't know if you've read those red letters before or not, but some of them are hissing hot. They really are. And if they don't challenge you to the core, there's something wrong. Okay? He talks about sacrificial living in ways that, that make my heart stop at times, you know? He talks about things in the scripture, uh, his words that really are designed to make us think. And a lot of preachers ignore them. A lot of preachers don't want to talk about them. A lot of preachers don't want to preach from those. Many preachers will not speak about sacrificial living for fear they will offend the rich. Well, let the rich be offended. Many preachers will not speak about holiness because people would leave in droves. Well, speak about holiness anyway. And so the question for us is, do we use flattery? When we speak to people, do we kind of ignore the real issues in their lives? Or do we actually address the real issues in, in their lives? Obviously, we have to address them in our lives first, right? Do we use flattery to win favor with people? Or are we willing to stand for the truth no matter who it offends? Verse 5, it says, Nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Um, the New Living Translation says it this way, Never once did we try to win you with flattery, as you well know. And God is our witness that we were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. I like the way that's written. Everywhere Paul preached, there was persecution. Everywhere he preached, there was persecution, not financial reward. 
And so the question for us as we serve the Lord, when you serve, does it cost you anything? Does it cost you anything? How much does it cost you? Verse 6, not an opportunity for glory seeking either. Nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, when we might have made demands as apostles of Christ. Though Paul was an apostle, he didn't use his position to beat them over the head or pull rank on them or lord it over them. It is sad, but it's true, that there's a lot of ministry that is done today to advance self. The more public the ministry is, the more danger there is of this. The more danger there is of pride creeping in and glory seeking. So I want to ask you a question. When you serve the Lord, when you minister to others, do we serve out of pride or do we serve out of humility? Are we looking for the attention of men or are we looking for the approval of God? So I started the message this morning with a picture and a question by asking, what made Alexander the Great great? And I think most people would say, well, the greatness of Alexander was in his military genius. Do you know that they still study his strategies today in military school? Alexander the Great, militarily. But how great was he in the eyes of the Lord. How great was he in his personal character? When we look at the Apostle Paul, I would say the Apostle Paul was great. But what made the Apostle Paul great? It was his humility. And it was his sacrificial service for others. It was his humility of service. And surely by his example, we see that the way up to greatness is actually the way down. The attitude, the work, the service of humility. So I asked you the question that was asked in that song. Do you want to be great in God's kingdom? Learn to be the servant of all. Philippians chapter 2 says this, Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others Better than himself. Who is better than you are in this audience? I hope as you look around, you say, every single one of you. Every single one of you is better. And not just you're saying the words because you know that's what I'm expecting you to say. But really feel that deeply in your heart. Every one of you is better than me. And I want to serve you. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What is that mind that was in Christ Jesus? He was God. did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. That's the mind of Christ. And that should be, let this mind, that's the context of this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Your greatness will depend entirely on your humility of service.
to others. Let's pray. Lord, as we come before you, we see that um, there is a... When you, when you talk about greatness, when you speak about it in, in your word, you really turn everything on its head. You turn everything upside down and inside out from all that the world teaches us about greatness. But, Lord, you're right and the world's wrong. And we just recognize, Lord, that we are called to humility of service and that if we want to be great in the kingdom of God, we need to be servants of all. Help us, Lord, to have your mind in this in our daily living with each other, among each other, for each other, and service to each other. We pray, Lord, that we might truly consider one another greater than ourselves. And we pray, Lord, that the humility of service might be greatly rewarded by you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.